0: He made the point that he wanted to help me up onto the platform. One of the last times that he saw me, well, several years ago now, I was waiting to get my second hip replaced. And I was limping around with a cane, and that's what stuck in his brain. (laughs) Don't you love it, what people remember you for? (laughs) Okay, topic today is fear. It used to be that public speaking was the number one fear in the United States. Go figure. And then it was airplane travel. And now it's terrorism. In the last few years there has been wonderful information about the physiology of fear, where it comes from in the brain, what it Helps you do what it helps you not do. So that's the topic today. To set the stage so we're all on the same page, emotions and feelings are very different aspects. They even follow different pathways in the brain, but who knew? And one of the problems with the English language is that we use emotions and feelings pretty interchangeable. And that's very confusing (coughs) because they are not synonyms and they are not interchangeable. So here is emotions and feelings 101 (laughs) very quickly. The Lancet Medical Journal from Britain has done tremendous amounts of research on emotions and feelings and they basically have come out with the latest research with brain scans about actually where in the brain pathways they go. So here's the definition of emotions. They are measurable physical responses caused by internal or external happening situations And each one of them is orchestrated by what's called a separate neuropeptide. Neuropeptides are just brain chemicals that alter mood. And so each one of the four core emotions is associated with a specific neuropeptide. The confusion comes Because when an emotion arises in the body, and it arises automatically based on what's happening inside of you or in the environment, when it causes these physical responses, they're often very similar for each of the core emotions. And so it's part of our job as human beings when we realize that an emotion has arisen, and it's pretty common in almost all of us, You know, your heart rate might change, your breathing might change, you might get butterflies in your stomach, you might get sweaty palms, you might get perspiration on your forehead. And then it's our job to look around at what just happened, what is happening, what is about to happen, that our brain is wanting to give us information that can help us manage that situation. And then we recognize that, oh, these symptoms, these physiological changes are because of such and such an emotion. And it's giving me energy. It's giving me information. You know, the brain takes in about 10 million bits of information every second. And there's no way that we could process that consciously. You know, I drove here last night from the Napa Valley. I saw lots of things out of my windows in my automobile. I don't remember very many of them. You know, I remember a couple of, driving by a couple of car accidents, which is always unfortunate. I did not stop and gawk. (laughs) But I don't remember that consciously, but the brain continually picks up those little pieces of information. And when it gets to a certain threshold, if you wanna call it that, or the brain realizes we're facing a situation that we might need to take some specific action, it will get our attention to give us that information. And the only way it does that is through an emotion. And through the changes that occur in our body to let us know, oops, an emotion just arose. Feelings are something entirely different. Feelings are the interpretation, the subjective experience, if you want, of our prefrontal cortex as it analyzes what's going on with this emotion and how important it is and whether we need to take action on it or just learn from the experience. And when it comes to a conclusion, it generates a feeling So here's the first bottom line. Emotions occur automatically. Sometimes we're responsible for them and sometimes we aren't. If you stayed up till 2 o'clock in the morning watching a really scary movie and woke up that night um, screaming at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're responsible for that. (laughs) Because you put that information into your brain. But if somebody burst in the back door with an automatic rifle and the emotion of fear arose, I didn't have anything to do with that. Don't even know the person. So you can be responsible for the triggering of some, but for many, we're not. You're responsible for every feeling you hang on to, unless you have a mental illness, because your brain created your feelings. If you don't like the way you feel, you change that by changing the way you think, which is so empowering. We are not at the whim of our feelings. We are not handicapped by them. You can change them anytime you want to by the way you think. Fear, as I mentioned, is an automatic response. As soon as the brain perceives a threat, for some reason it doesn't feel safe, and so the emotion of fear will arise. Here's the problem with this particular emotion. It doesn't matter whether the threat is real, whether you are actually in danger, or whether you just have an imagined fear, the emotion's going to be triggered either way. And that's the problem with fear. It's designed to be used in emergency situations when you're actually in danger. It was never designed to trigger the stress response for imagined fear. And every one of us in this room has imagined fears. And if you're afraid that you don't, there you go. You got one. The problem with imagined fears is they're usually based on what happened to us in childhood. You know, you had a bad experience with a garter snake and now you have a phobia for all snakes. Or you got sick eating peanut butter and now you're afraid there's peanut butter in everything. You are afraid that you aren't handsome enough or pretty enough or smart enough, or able to have somebody really fall in love with you that's a good quality person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, or that you're going to fail, or that you're not going to get into the choral group, or that on and on and on. And part of growing up and maturing is getting a handle on your imaginary fears and letting those go when they're not doing you any good. So the challenge is to spend a little time and ask yourself, what are you afraid of? What makes you get worried and anxious? You know, anxiety, generalized anxiety disorders are the number one mental illness in the United States. And they're called a mental illness because they sap your energy and they occupy space in your mind and they don't leave you free to really use your brain the way it could be used. The stress response, and I'm sure you've heard lots about the stress response, when the brain feels unsafe, it immediately begins to release something called corticotropin releasing factor, CRF. Doesn't matter whether you remember that or not. Just know that the minute you feel fear, the brain just pours out this really, really powerful chemical because it's going to help, it's designed to help you keep yourself safe, keep the people you love safe. And as soon as CRF goes up, then something else called norepinephrine is released. And it's a messenger. It'll, it'll activate every cell in your brain and body and say, we have a crisis here, get ready. And, of course, then the stress hormone, cortisol, begins to increase and adrenaline will be pumped and that's pretty hard on the body long term if there is not an immediate danger from which you need to take for which you need to take action all of these powerful chemicals are just in effect going to begin to deteriorate your brain one stress response Is he going to text me on my cell phone? I'm so worried he isn't. Is she going to go out with me? Name it. There goes corticotropin releasing factor. There goes norepinephrine. There goes cortisol, adrenaline. 72 hours to rebalance those chemicals in your brain and body. I'm sure that you've met people as I have that I don't think have ever been out of the stress response because they come from very, very dysfunctional environments. And therefore they have a hard time learning at school and they're often sick. Same thing happens to adulthood. You keep the stress response going for week after month after year and you will develop some type of illness to your brain and body because the body and the brain were not designed to deal with that. So the question becomes, in addition to, what am I afraid of? The question comes, what, um, what did you learn about emotions and feelings growing up and what did you learn about fear specifically? And it's worth going back and doing some Family of Origin and looking at that. Because the brain can only deal with what you identify and describe. So if you haven't gone back and looked at how you were raised and what happened to you, what was the atmosphere like in your home? Was it pretty much joyful? Or were you anxious and scared that you weren't going to do it right? And on and on and on. You need to you need to look at that because unless you can identify... And describe that your brain can't manage it and so you will begin to develop this slush fund of unresolved emotional fear in your brain and the male brain is especially prone to not want to deal with stuff like this just make it go away and then one little thing will happen and the male brain will bring all of that unresolved emotional energy to this moment And it's got nothing to do with this moment. It's just something in this moment reminded the brain of something in the past that was unpleasant. And uh, maybe you're having an argument with your spouse and you've just, you know, lost it. It has nothing to do with the moment. It has to do with your past and what you have or have not identified and resolved. So think about that. I can tell you in my family, my dad was a preacher. Anybody a preacher's kid out there? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, the rest of you aren't going to know what I'm going to talk about next. It didn't matter how many people were in my father's church. 300, 3,000. Every one of those people knew exactly how the minister's daughter should behave. And none of them agreed. So no wonder preacher's kids sometimes want to distance themselves from religion. You can't, you can't meet expectations for 300 people. It's not possible. But let me tell you, As a preacher's kid, I grew up terrified because I would do something and one person would like it and on the way out of the church another person would accost me and tell me how horrible that was. (laughs) I remember there was an elderly gentleman, quite elderly, and he always sat right on the front row. And I just thought he had lovely, thick, curly hair. (laughs) until one day I opened my eyes during the 17-minute main prayer. And he was scratching his head and all of the hair was moving. And I realized he had a wig on. I don't know why that tickled me, but I could not stop laughing. And on the way out, a well-meaning but totally unenlightened woman said to me, Arlene, you were laughing during the prayer. And I thought, and how do you know that? I wasn't making a lot of noise. She said, don't you find it significant that there are no paintings of Christ laughing? And I said, no, just the artists were all depressed. (laughs) My father was unamused. A few years ago when I was on a lecture tour to Australia, I was exposed to an art exhibit that changed my life. Somebody in Australia had orchestrated this big event and they had asked 20 different artists from 20 different countries and cultures to each draw a couple of pictures of Christ smiling and laughing. It was amazing. I still get goosebumps when I talk about it. Changed my perception. So, go back and think about what happened to you. Were you raised knowing that all of the core emotions were positive? How many were raised knowing that? Okay, well, like there's no hands. (laughs) I grew up being taught that joy was the only positive emotion. And that all the others were negatives. Well, guess what? That's erroneous information. All emotions are positive. They are given to us to help us manage specific situations in life. The emotions are positive. What ends up being negative many times is that people exhibit behaviors that give them negative outcomes, and so they think it's the emotion that's negative. No, it isn't. It's the response of that individual to the emotion, and whether it's positive or negative. The four core emotions, and I think I have a slide about that, but if you hear it twice, you might remember it. The four core emotions are joy, anger, fear, and sadness. And you can put the hundreds of feeling words into one of those categories. The reason I only talk about four core emotions is because those are the emotions that researchers can see on the face of the fetus during pregnancy depending what is happening to the mother and her environment. And I'm here to tell you it's devastatingly sad to see a sad little fetal face. Or a scared little fetal face. Or a mad little fetal face because its mother is getting battered. So we talk about four core emotions. Ah, yes, there it is. And we've put them in a a stair step illustration to help you remember that. So joy is what researchers believe the brain is hardwired to want to live at that step, joy. It's the default position. And the protective emotions, the anger, fear, and sadness are called protective emotions, only arise if there's some reason in the environment for them to arise. You will see above joy there is something called euphoria. It is not a separate emotion. It is just brief periods of intense joy. And Maxine and Betty and I were talking last night about longevity. I don't know what you're telling your brain about how long you're expecting it to live you know your brain can only do what it thinks it can do and it's your job to tell it what it can do and you tell it in the new speech style so every morning I tell myself Arlene you are living to be at least 122 years 146 days no 165 days 122 years 165 days I have to remember because that's sort of copying jean Louise Calmont, who lived in France, down in Arles. When she died, she was 122, 164 days. So I'm not competitive or anything, but I'm <laughs> aiming for 165 days. <laughs> and I tell my brain that every day. I do not know how long I'm going to live, but I have a, a goal for my brain. And I hear people say over and over again, you know, my dad died at 57 of a heart attack. I'll probably die at 57. Do you realize you've just programmed your brain to think about dying at 57? It's ridiculous. So you always use your first name so your brain knows who you're talking about. (laughs) I'm not talking about the pastor, I'm not talking about multimedia here. I'm talking about Arlene, you are living. 122 years and you know and maybe 130 years who knows (laughs) the current research is this only 30% of how well you live and how long you live has to do with your genetics 70% you control through your lifestyle so it's worthwhile living a longevity lifestyle my brain's opinion so Euphoria, I started to talk about that when I hit 122 and I had my birthday cake. It's going to have to be pretty big to get 122 candles on it. Nevertheless, I'm going to be a bit euphoric. (laughs) Below joy is anger. It is the emotion that alerts us that our boundaries have been invaded and gives us the opportunity to set our boundaries appropriately. Below anger is fear. We've talked about that already in that it is designed to help us recognize when we're in situations of danger. And I cannot tell you the number of times working with young people that have had a bad outcome. And they'll say, you know, I noticed such and such, but I didn't pay any attention to it. And then they got date raped or something like that. Pay attention to your emotions. They are trying to give you valuable information. In fact, Dr. Candace Pert, the NIH researcher who first identified opiate receptors in the brain, which have changed the way we deal with addictive behaviors, said, oh, she said so many things. What was it I was going to tell you? I got sidetracked thinking about her. Any of you watch the documentary, "What the Bleep?" she's on that documentary, and she talks she shows you know brain function and everything like that. Um, when I worked with people with addictive behaviors, pretty much they were living in fear, and their exhibited behaviors were all about "I'll get you first before you get me so It's really worth paying attention to. And then you go down to sadness. And sadness, oh, I remember. You know, your brain is so wonderful. It'll give it to you. Just give it a minute. (laughs) You know. Um, Now I forgot it again. (laughs) So sadness is the emotion that you recognize that you've experienced a loss and when you ask people what's the first thing you think of when you hear the word loss what do you think they say what do they say death so I ask you how many major deaths have occurred in your life I've had quite a few family members die Uh, I regret they died a couple times it was a relief for them and me didn't wish them dead, but as long as they died, my life's better. And I'm willing to own that. But those were rare. It's the little losses in life that we often miss, unfortunately. So Candice Pert said, the only way your subconscious mind gets in touch with your conscious mind is through an emotion. It's designed to get your attention and give you information. And to me, that's just staggering because we have 10 or 15% of this top layer in our brain that has conscious thought. Everything else, including our bodies, are subconscious. And emotions are designed to bring information from that big subconscious up to conscious awareness so we can identify it, describe it, and manage it. So they're really critically important. And at the bottom here is apathy. It is not an emotion of its own, just like euphoria is not an emotion of its own. But apathy often occurs when people don't know how to manage emotions and they get overwhelmed. And apathy is really a state of immobility due to overwhelming, unmanaged emotions. So it's really important to understand this. When you look at this emotion staircase, society says, socializes us to believe that it's okay for men to be angry, but it's not okay for women. We have to be nice. If you cannot deal with anger, you can't set your boundaries. Women have been socialized to express fear and sadness so some big strong male can come and rescue you. You know, the white horse and the knight. I'm delighted when any male helps me with anything. But it's not because I need to be rescued. But here's the problem. Women, statistically, have a lot of trouble managing anger because it's okay to be fearful and it's okay to be sad, but it's not okay to deal with anger. That handicaps them. They don't set their boundaries, and they tolerate intolerable situations because they can't address anger. What does scripture say about anger? All right, the first thing it says is, get your anger resolved By the time the sun goes down. So if sundown is 8 o'clock and at, you know, 7.58 something really bad happens, you got two minutes. (laughs) The other thing it says is when the emotion of anger surfaces, be really careful of the behaviors you exhibit. But anger is very valuable. It's right next to, to joy. So males socialized that it's okay to be angry. Females socialize that, you know, fear and sadness will get you. They, they sometimes use the, manipulate people with that. Uh, unhelpful, because men don't go to sadness and grieve. So when another event happens, you know, they just add all that energy to the slush fund. And uh, women don't know how to deal with, with anger. We all need to deal with all of it because those are my four most helpful brain assistants. PET scans. This is where researchers began to understand that the, there are different pathways in the brain for these emotions. Joy is aligned with the left hemisphere. So when a person is in a PET scan, and they're asked to remember the last time they were really, really joyful. It's the left hemisphere that's going to light up on the screen. And when the participants are asked in order, think of a time you were really, really mad. Think of a time when you were terrified. Think of a time when you were really sad, not simultaneously because it's a different neuropeptide, but in sequence. Those three protective emotions lit up the right hemisphere of the brain. Researchers believe it's because those long axons on neurons that are wrapped with myelin, that white, whitish insulation, there's a lot more of those in the right hemisphere, and it's fast. You know, it can send messages 600 miles an hour. And therefore, the protective emotions can help give you information pretty quickly. So the emotion of fear, to reiterate, is a signal that you may be in some type of danger. But again, in large sample studies, there's no bona fide real danger, it's imagined danger. It's critically important, I don't care how old you are, start teaching these this stuff to kids. You can teach three-year-olds. I work with Montessori schools and we the teachers are teaching them this information, and it's just so much fun to watch. I'll give you one short example. In one of the Montessori schools, a mother had brought in big chocolate chip cookies for all the little kids, and this happened to be a five-year-old group, and for two years they had been, there's, they built an actual emotions staircase, And when the kids were acting out, they'd say, go stand on the step that represents what's happening to you right now. And they can do this. So they were all out in the patio. And little Farquart, five-year-old Farquart, he's sitting at one of the picnic tables eating his sandwich and his cookie is out on the table. And all of a sudden in a whirlwind, in comes a Great Dane, through the fence, runs over, grabs his cookie, takes off. Farquart has a meltdown. This isn't fair, and so on and so forth. Crying, sobbing, screaming, so on. So they let him do that for a few seconds. It gets rid of a lot of energy. And finally they said, uh, so Farquart, go stand on the step that represents what you're Experiencing right now, he runs over and stands on anger. And the teacher says, You know, your cookie boundaries just got invaded. Somebody stole from you. That isn't fair. It's too bad. Can I have another cookie? There aren't any more cookies. That's not fair either. Teacher says, How do you suppose the Great Dane got into the patio? I guess I forgot and left the gate open. Hmm. What could you do another time to prevent this? Lock the gate. Okay, you do that. Maybe next time cookies come, nobody will come in and steal yours. At which point he starts crying and screaming and jumping up and down again. So the teacher says Farquhar, how long do you want to cry and scream? Two minutes. Okay, she says, fine, come on down off the steps so you don't fall and hurt yourself. I'll time you. When I count to three, you start. One, two, three, go. And he goes. Thirteen seconds later, he stops and he goes, that's a lot of work. (laughs) And the teacher says, well, do you want to keep going or do you want to stop? Oh, I want to keep going. Okay, fine. He starts yelling and screaming, carrying on. Fifteen seconds later he goes, you know, this really is a lot of work. (laughs) Teacher says, well, you ready to let that go and just remember your lesson? I think so. I know 70-year-old people who couldn't do that. (laughs) 60-year-old people who couldn't do that. 90-year-old people who couldn't do that. Learn to do that now. It's going to save your body a lot of stress. Fears are really important if they are related to genuine danger to keep you safe because if you don't, if you can't register fear and males have been socialized to be unafraid, which is a crock, you know, every brain is going to have some things to fear if they know what they're doing. But you won't be able to protect yourself or or people you care about. And uh, here are some of the Highest rated situations for fear currently, natural disasters, terrorism, that goes back and forth, airline travel, public speaking is down three or four now, Uh, aging, financial crash, global warming, illness, disease, dementia, especially dementia, and that's why it's worth studying about longevity. Sleep, for example, is independently linked with longevity. Meaning you might be doing other good things, but if you're cutting down on your sleep, your brain is not getting to do its housekeeping duties at night, and you can shorten your life. No place I'm going. We've talked about the imagined fears. There's just some of them, because people will often say, I don't have any imagined fears. And then you talk to them for a little while, and boy, they just come right out. And as I mentioned, addictions are usually wrapped up with with imagined fears. And the only way to deal with them, as far as they know, is to get involved with some substance or activity or person or whatever that's going to trigger the brain reward system and pour out a little dopamine so they feel a little better. But hardcore addict life expectancy is somewhere around 37 years, which is a fur piece from 122. We've talked about the stress response. Imagined or real is going to trigger the stress response, but here's the problem. A stress response triggered from imagined fear is more likely to be prolonged, doesn't clear up in 72 hours, because you keep thinking about it in your mind's eye so you've got a continual internal trigger for the emotion of fear. If you don't need it or you don't get it resolved quickly it can stifle creativity you know writer's block, musician's block all those blocks are just the brain not being able to be creative because it's all involved with fear of something. Will my next book be a bestseller or not? Undermines confidence, phobias, immobility, apathy, all of that stuff. The worst part of it, in my brain's opinion, is that it locks down, as researchers put it, the prefrontal cortex. The part right behind your forehead is responsible for Willpower, planning, morality, uh, spiritual connection, um, all of those high-level executive functions that make us distinctly human and that we need to use all the time. And when it locks down that prefrontal cortex, then we lose the easy access to those functions. So Joseph Chilton Pierce, love his work, said, any fear or anger, which is probably the reason we're supposed to resolve anger by sundown, any fear or anger shifts energy and attention from the neocortex, up here prefrontal cortex, to the reptilian brain. And the reptilian brain is just a name for the brainstem and cerebellum where there's no conscious thought whatsoever. There's just the stress responses and reactivity and so on. We mentioned this, male-female differences, thought you might find it interesting to learn that society says that males may exhibit fear, and usually do, as anger, and it comes out as excessive control, inflexibility, obsessive-compulsive disorder, or as a dictatorship style of leadership with fear being the underlying trigger for that. And as we look around our world today and you see leaders exhibiting anger, fear may be actually the underlying uh, trigger for that. And females uh, socialize to avoid taking risk. They may exhibit fear as fear, but since they're socialized uh, probably even more to sadness, they often look like they're sad when they're actually scared. And they may exhibit a lot of tears, which really is fear more than sadness. I mentioned anxiety disorders. Hmm. Most common mental illness right now in the United States. 40 million adults over the age of 18 accounts for more than one-third of the $148 billion that this country spends annually on mental health. And for scriptural students, you know that scripture says be anxious about what? Nothing. Well, duh. It's pretty lethal for the brain and body. Joseph Ledoux, another wonderful researcher, says that emotional processes operate at a much higher speed than thoughts. We know thoughts can go up to 600 miles an hour through your brain. And emotional processes can go so much faster that it may completely even miss any time for that higher functioning brain to decide whether or not you want to hang on to this and how you want to exhibit it. Joseph Chilton Pierce, who said that fear can, in essence, what we call downshift the brain. So here's the cognitive functions up here in the top of the third layer. I've just pulled these layers apart so you can see the reptilian layer, the mammalian layer, and the neocortex. Well, you're involved in fear or anger, and the brain puts its energy and attention down here in the reptilian layer, which is all reptiles have. So you know how you're acting when you're down there. And you will have trouble learning, difficulty problem solving, can't do cause and effect, uh, trouble with both rational and logical thinking and you can't plan and choose. It accelerates the aging process, I can't afford that. Uh, You tend to fall back into old habit patterns, and if you are trying to uh, recover from an addictive behavior, you're in real trouble because it's real easy to get back into that. And it suppresses the immune system function and activates phobias. Nothing I'm interested in. When I worked with people with addictive behaviors, I would often show them this figure, and I'd say, quickly, how many boxes How many boxes? 16, 17. There you go. Because if you are downshifted, you cannot do abstract thinking. And you can literally count. You know, the reptilian layer can count. You know, 4, 8, 12, 16, 17. Or it can multiply. But it can't do abstract thinking. And it can't say, okay, boxes. Well, here's a box, and there's a box, and there's a box, and here's another box, and another, and bigger boxes. Go home, draw one out, count them up, if you're upshifted. What do you see first? What else do you see? Good. Somebody's upshifted. Does everybody see the word liar? And I would have to point it out to these people because they would never, ever see it on their own. And there's numbers in it. There's all kinds of things to see if you're upshifted. So, what's the antidote for fear? Research shows there is one... It is called gratitude. Gratitude and thankfulness are part of the emotion of joy. And if you find yourself fearful, all you have to do is think of something for which to be grateful and you will upshift to that third layer. I didn't grow up thinking much about gratitude. I just grew up thinking about how to stay out of trouble with 3,000 people. So I've had to develop some new habits. First thing in the morning, several times the day, last thing at night, I'm always thinking of something for which to be grateful. So if I ever notice myself downshifted, just pull up one of those and climb back up to the top. So the bottom line, fear and gratitude cannot simultaneously coexist in the brain. It's one or the other. Because remember, they each have their own neuropeptide. So gratitude is a vaccine, an antitoxin, an antiseptic, and an antidote for fear. All right, let's wind this up. This is one of the most helpful metaphors I have ever learned your brain has a stage. I don't know what yours looks like. I know what mine looks like. And because when you do it in your brain, money's no object. I've got pure Carrara marble from Italy. I've got 24 carat solid Corinthian pillars. Really nice semicircle here, several stairs. You are on the stage of your brain every moment that you're alive. And you always have one assistant with you on the brain on this stage. And those four assistants are joy, anger, fear, and sadness. Good. You want joy out there all the time unless there's a bona fide reason that one of those other protective emotions needs to get your attention. And when that happens, let's say I'm mad about something, well, anger's going to come out from the wings, kick joy off the stage, and anger will be out there with me as long as I allow it to be. If it's fear... It will come out and kick joy off, and fear will be on stage with me as long as I allow it to be there. And the same thing with sadness. So I orchestrate to a large degree by my thoughts who's out on stage with me. And being continually grateful tends to keep joy out there. Roosevelt. No, I didn't know him personally. But I do like one thing that he supposedly said. There is nothing to fear but fear itself. And that really speaks to a lot of imaginary fears. And I'm sure you know the Apostle Paul said, we quoted it earlier, be anxious about nothing. People want to argue about that. I refuse to argue. They want to argue. There are some things I should be anxious about. And I said, name one. Name one thing that it's worth hanging on to anxiety about when you now know what it does to the brain and body. Well, when you put it that way. And perfect love casts out fear. So gratitude is the antidote. You can choose to be immobilized or you can be grateful and resolve fear that does not need to stay in your brain. Back to Henry Ford. Your brain can only do what it thinks it can do. So if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Because it all starts in your brain. Thank you.